From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. My guests, Helene Stepinski and Bonnie Siegler, are the authors of The American Way, a true story of Nazi escape, Superman, and Marilyn Monroe. And obviously they came to write this book by scheming what are the things that most interest Gary Shapiro? Movies, comic books, Jewish culture, and Hitler, and let's shove them all in one book. So they could at last hear me say, Helene Stepinski and Bonnie Siegler, welcome to From the Bookshelf. <laughs> Thank you for having us. And I'm so glad that we wrote this for you. <laughs> Thank you. Julie <laughs> Taylor. Uh, Bonnie Siegler, you, you've, you've written uh, Dear Client, a guide for people who work with creatives and Signs of Resistance, a history of protest in America. And Helene Stepinski, you've written several books, including Five Finger Discount, A Crooked Family History, Murder in Matera, A True Story of Passion, Family and Forgiveness in Southern Italy. And now, like Batman and Superman, you have teamed up to write the world's finest book, The American Way, A True Story of Nazi Escape, Superman and Marilyn Monroe. So what's the origin story of your team up? The origin story is, well, I, I obviously knew my grandfather my whole life and thought he was, and he was my hero, really. Um, and then um, at towards the end of his life, we were cleaning out his apartment and we found this footage he had shot of Marilyn Monroe on the street while filming The Seven Year Itch. He was a furrier, not a filmmaker. So he was just a, a man with a camera standing there filming it and we found it and it was super exciting and we loved it and then we put it away um, and then about 10 years later um, our government changed a little bit and there was a lot of hate around us and hate and you know where there's hate there's anti-semitism and I wanted to get an article in the newspaper about you know the Holocaust, 1933, how these societies change over time, how we slide into fascism, all those things. But, you know, I'm nobody. Um, so, but I had this Marilyn Monroe footage and I had my grandfather's story. So I asked my agent to recommend someone who could write it for the New York Times. And she introduced me to Helene. And there I was, yeah. And so uh, we met for lunch and um, Trump got elected you know, he was he was running at the time that she just wanted to pitch it. And then he gets elected, like right in the middle of you know us talking to each other. And it took months, really, for me to pitch it and to do it because everything was Trump all the time, you know, all Trump all the time. And you couldn't even get a feature story in the paper. And so as soon as I met Bonnie and saw the footage of, um, of Marilyn, which is incredible footage, but also heard her grandfather's story, I was like, oh, my God, this is an amazing story. Yes, I'm pitching this, you know. So I pitched it to the Times and eventually they took it and it ran. And it was one of those stories that went viral. It went all over the world. It bounced all over the place. And um, a couple of years later, Bonnie said, do you want to write a book about my grandfather? And by then, you know, I knew everything about him. And in the meantime, Bonnie found out that his financial sponsor to come over from Berlin in 1938 was Harry Donenfeld, who was the founder of Action Comics and the publisher. And he's Superman. Yeah, I, I knew it. I had heard his name, but I couldn't find anything else about him. So I put it away. But Helene and I had so much fun on the article. <laughs> I was like, let's go back for more. And now that we had three main characters, my grandfather... Marilyn Monroe and Harry Donenfeld. <laughs> we got to do this. Yeah, so it's 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 really the story of 
of the Jewish diaspora. And I mean, like Hitler did a lot for American popular culture. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, let, let's let's get into a little bit of, of detail. So how does how does your grandfather's story, um, Helene? I mean, Bonnie Stegler. How does your grandfather's story um, intersect with with Superman, the strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men and who disguises Clark Kent, fights a Bob Matter reporter for our great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, in the American way? Wow. Well, now you know why our book is called what it's called. <laughs> do, you think watched, do you think I watched that show too too much? when I was <laughs> um, Wait, what did you ask me again? <laughs> How do they intersect? So, um, if you lived in Germany at the time of Hitler from 1933 on, you, in order to leave Germany and come to America, you needed to get a sponsor in America, somebody who would take responsibility for you should you not be able to work or earn money for yourself. So, he didn't know anybody in America, but he did have a cousin who he had never met. So he traveled to America to meet this cousin and, and just find other people, meet people and find a sponsor and see what it might be like to live in America. Um, and my cousin Faye lived next door to Harry Donenfeld in the Bronx in the early 30s. Before comics, he was just their next door neighbor, but they remained friends. And so he got big and had a publishing house by the time she went to him. And she asked for him to sign for my grandfather and for my aunt and uncle and he did so uh harry donenfeld um the story of superman is kind of a sad story in a way which you talk about quite a bit in in the american way because the two boys who created superman two jewish boys jerry siegel and joe schuster um signed away the rights to what they thought was a huge payday at the time but when you think of the billions of dollars that superman has generated it continues to generate yeah it, yeah. it, that that is referred to as the original sin in the comic world because because Jerry and Joe did that and everybody knew it nobody else did that everybody else maintained the rights to their own creation um, and but Jerry and Joe were kids they didn't know what they were doing and 130 dollars was a lot of money yeah they had been shopping it around for like five years you know by the time Harry Donenfeld asked for it so to them they just wanted they loved Superman they, they loved him and they wanted to see him in print you know and so they just took it you know they're like sure here you know never knowing what was going to happen so well now i i think that there's a little bit of anti-semitism involved in the comic book industry to begin with that is siegel and schuster envisioned superman as a comic strip but comic strips were um sort of a more high class kind of art form whereas comic books were thought of as trash and therefore open to jews yeah, yeah, I mean, Jews, you, you, you go, Bonnie. You're more well-versed on this one. No, I mean, mostly the comic book artists were people who couldn't get work in the traditional advertising agencies or doing other kinds of illustration because they were Jews. So they went to the comics industry for that reason. Um, but comic strips were obviously there before comic books. So there were non-Jewish comic strip artists, you're right. But like Hollywood, it became Jewish because it was a brand new industry that Jews could get a job in. Oh, right. Well, I mean, like Hollywood, I mean, uh, movies were thought of as trash as opposed to live theater. So therefore, was open to Jews. Exactly. <laughs> right. So it's interesting how, how 
popular culture in America. And now, of course, today, comic books dominate popular culture in a way that I'm sure Harry Donnerfeld or Siegel and Schuster never imagined they would. And they've taken over Hollywood. I mean, Holly, yeah, what's left? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there are no movies unless they're based on comic books. Yeah. I never thought that would happen when I was a kid. Because uh, Now, I actually have been a comic book collector since oh, 1966. I remember my very first comic book, which was a Superboy comic. Wow. And, Superboy. We know all about him, yeah. Yes, and, and there's a kind of a sad story on Superboy, too. Tell us about that. Well, Car- I'm sorry, Jerry and Jones pitched Superboy many times, and it was rejected every time. And then when Jerry got drafted, they made Joe create a Superboy comic without Jerry and didn't pay Jerry or tell Jerry. And Joe was really torn because his partner was serving in Hawaii, I think. Maybe in Hawaii. Far away and he couldn't just pick him up and call him. So when they sued for the rights of Superman back, which they lost, of course, they did win payment for Superboy because it was stolen directly from them with no paperwork ever being put forth. Did it ever come between those two, the Superboy? He, Jerry was upset, but he understood, I think, why Joe, he was employed. He had to do it. He really didn't have a choice. So, and they were both kind of, you know, they were shy, kind of, I, I don't want to say wimpy, but they were withdrawn. Like they weren't men of the world. So. Yeah, like, they were kind of naive, even into Harry adulthood, Jack, it seems. Yeah, yeah, Harry and Jack just walked all over them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and what was the, I mean, was, was was there anything other than just financial gain motivating that? Was there pressure on them as well, or they were just greedy? No, they were just greedy, I think. Um, <laughs> Harry and Jack? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, had, they had done this before with, you know, and, and before the comics came along, they would do this with other magazines where they just sort of like would trick you into selling your magazine to them or, you know, giving you a big bill that you couldn't pay and then they would take it over. So they had done this before, you know, and which is a whole other, we didn't even go into the, the yeah. what's his name? <laughs> yeah. Well, go, go into it. I'm very curious. So they were, they were in the, they, they, they made their names. They were guys who were not particularly creative, but they made their uh, money on the work of creative people. They were corporate raiders, you know, it's, it's just the American way, right? <laughs> Were right. creative accountants. That's what they were. Yeah, creative. Well, Jack accountant. was. Jack was the accountant. He was yeah, a girl. And they, their offices were in a building, a full block building with four entrances. So when they would close a business and open a business, they would just use one of those other entrances as their address. So the IRS or nobody ever picked up that it was just one building with four different street addresses. <laughs> and, so Action Comics, they stole the company and the magazine, actually, from, what was his name? Major. I'm just getting to look at it. I couldn't remember. Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. That's it. Malcolm, Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson had actually bought the, com- the Superman. Com- they bought all these comics. They were making a new comic called Action Comics, and Harry and Jack were printing it and distributing it. But then they gave Malcolm a bill that he couldn't possibly pay. And they took the company away in court while Malcolm was away. And made a fortune. And published action comics, which they didn't know would be what it was, but they put it out and it was huge. Amazing. And um, 
you're also there's some other main characters in your story uh, that are of interest to everybody like Billy Wilder. So um, since since you have this piece of film that's sort of the, the spark of your story, um, we find ourselves following Billy Wilder from the time he was a young man. Yeah, Billy Wilder um, left Berlin not long before Jules did, um, Bonnie's grandfather. So, you know, we didn't really put it all together until we started researching the book. We're like, oh, wait, he had the same trajectory, you know. And of course, he's the director of The Seven Year Itch, which is where Marilyn was when the dress blew up, when Jules shot her. So it all sort of jigsawed together, you know. So we went back and researched Billy Wilder. And there were all these crazy coincidences between Billy Wilder and Jules, you know, uh, one one being that... um, Billy Wilder's first successful film uh, was People on Sunday, which involved people going to the beach, basically, right outside of Berlin on Sunday. It was a a black and white sort of pseudo documentary, you know. Um, And the pictures that we found of Jules in Berlin at that time were him at Wansi Lake, which is where the movie was shot. And so it was just this weird dovetailing. And then, of course, Wansi Lake later becomes the setting for the Wansi Conference, which is where the um, Nazis got together and came up with the final solution. So it all, so, you know, everything kind of wove itself together. They went through lists of the number of Jews in different countries. They went country by country. How many Jews are, oh, six million? Okay, we'll kill all of them. How many Jews are in this country? Okay, they're, they're in too. It was actually nine million, you know, they were shooting for. So they, they just wanted to kill all the Jews in Europe. We we actually went to Berlin to do research, and we went to the Vonsi, um house. Yeah. Wow. Um, so you did a lot of research, obviously, because it's uh, every chapter weaves its way back, uh, you know, back and forth. All these little threads that you tie together, um, and it is really interesting when you think about that in the demographic of world religions. Uh, Judaism is the smallest, the tiniest of, of all of them, and yet has dominated popular culture um, in America to s- such a great degree. There was Sarah Silverman did a thing the other night on The Daily Show where she interviewed people. She said, there's a lot of anti-Semitism. I'm looking for some good pro-Semitism. What do you like about Jews? And the first person said, they write all the great Christmas songs. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> White Christmas by Irving Berlin. That's right. <laughs> I thought that was that was a sweet way to you know tie it all up. It's 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 really also part of the whole Jewish thing in the world of entertainment. I mean, changing your name so that you don't have a Jewish sounding name, and uh, you know, kind of the fact that Hollywood, run by the Jewish moguls who ran the studios, they never made movies or very rarely made movies with Jewish themes, but they often made movies with Christian themes. We just wanted to be American. That was the goal, to be American. Yeah, they didn't even go against Hitler, really, you know, until later when the the U.S. got into the the war. There weren't that many Hollywood movies that criticized Hitler at all. Um, Germany was a big, um, big market for them, you know, so. They didn't close it off too soon. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, comic books actually were, one of the first pieces of American popular culture that turned against Hitler. And I mean, Captain America appears a few months before the beginning of World War II for Americans and Captain America is punching Hitler in the face. Oh, absolutely. And Superman. Yeah. He was out there fighting the Nazis. Yeah. Yeah, 
fought the Nazis a lot. And Mussolini, he he really went after both of them. He holds them both by the scruff of their neck. Stalin, don't forget Stalin. He didn't like Stalin either. Before before the change. (laughs) In that little period of time. Yes. Of the Stalin uh, Nazi pact. so how did you how did you go about your research? You just said you went to Berlin, um, Helene Stepinski. What what how how did you weave it all together? Where how did it happen? I mean, each 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 subject was a different research lane, if you will. So to find out all the stuff that happened to my family, we interviewed everybody who I could find a phone number what for, even if I'd never met them before. Yeah. Uh, we were just, we really spread out. And then, and the Holocaust Museum was very helpful. All the Holocaust Museums were helpful in getting materials. Um, for Marilyn, we basically read every book about Marilyn and talked to every expert on Marilyn. Um, Harry, we spoke with everyone in Harry's family. They were incredibly helpful for the, so each one required different research and going different places to find out. Yeah, it was kind of nice to be able to change gears, too, because, you know, taking that deep dive into the Holocaust, which is really at the center of the book, um, Mm -hmm. we we like to think of this book as sort of a Trojan horse. You know, it's got Marilyn Monroe and it's got Superman and all this fun stuff in Hollywood. But right in the middle of it is the Holocaust, you know, and um, every time I got a little too deep and was pretty, you know, depressed, I would switch gears and do some Maryland research or, or do some Superman research. So it was kind of a nice, uh, <laughs> yes. and, and, topic. And, and, and your book is, is really amusing and, and uh, interesting and fun to read. But of course, all of these stories, I guess, except Billy Wilder, have a sort of a sad, um, uh, aspect of them. Yeah. Well, life is sad. Life yes. Is sad. Um, but my, I think it's kind of uplifting overall though. I mean, my grandfather uh, led a great life, really. So he um, he not only escaped from Nazi Germany, but then he went back and escaped again. Exactly. He I and mean, getting in was a problem because the Germans didn't want any Jews coming in. They wanted all the Jews going out. Yeah, well, he had gone to New York to find a sponsor. So he gets Harry as a sponsor. Then he's got to go back and get his wife and kid and he's trying to convince other family members to leave as well. But no one really thought it was going to be as bad as it got. Um, so they refused to go. But uh, yeah, he had to get back in and and the Jew, the Germans didn't want the Jews to come back into North Germany. It's like, what are you doing? You're Jewish, leave, you know. So he had to he had to um, trick his way back in. He said he was Clark Gable's agent. <laughs> and if they didn't if they didn't let him in, uh, Clark Gable's next film would not be playing in Germany, and the Führer would be not happy about that because he was a big fan of Clark Gable. And of course, he was not his agent. He just thought of that at the last minute as he was at the border. Had he ever met Clark Gable? Did he ever meet Clark Gable? No. <laughs> he was a Jewish furrier who lived in Berlin, traveled to New York for two weeks in his life. He never met Clark Gable. I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, it, but um, it worked. It worked. One of the interesting aspects of the story that I think you you really talk about in detail is you know, when I was growing up, and uh, I'm Jewish, obviously, and uh, everybody that I knew was Jewish, and we all always wondered, you know, why didn't they leave? Why did Jews stay as long as they stayed? And why didn't they leave? And, uh, you know, it, ne- it never occurred to us, because we were kids, all the things you would leave if you left, and how difficult it would be to leave. 
Yeah, I think the younger people were more apt to leave because you didn't have a set life. You know, you didn't have a business. You didn't have your whole life there. I mean, uh, Bonnie's great grandfather um, was he served in World War One there, you know, so he it never even occurred to him that he would be victimized. He fought for his country. You know, he was patriotic. He loved Germany. Jules loved Germany. He didn't want to leave, you know, but he was 25. He saw the writing on the wall. And he's like, I'm getting the hell out of here. You know, and but he didn't have much to leave behind, except for his family, of course. But um, he made a new life, and it was easier for him to make a new life because it was a, it was a new life in uh, in New York. But people, I, and I can imagine it now. Like I think about it, I'm 58, and I'm like, would I be able to up and leave and go some? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think I could have done it. I mean, I used to think, how could these people not leave with Hitler? He's such a maniac, right? But I was like, oh. Now I, I'm old now and I kind of get it. You know, you get set in your wage, you've got your house, you've got your work, you've got the rest of your family. You know, it's just hard to light a fire under your ass and go. When Trump was elected, well, seven years ago, I guess now, um, I definitely was confronted with, do I stay or do I go? What lesson have I learned from my grandfather? And that lesson really was get the hell out. Right. Um, but and so I start, but I'm not the same person. And it's, you know, the other thing about the older people being 55 in the thirties was like being 75 now. So yes. you're talking to like a 75 year old saying, why didn't you move to a country where you didn't speak the language and start over? Like, it just doesn't happen. Right. People didn't live nearly as long as they do, but, um, but you do bring up an interesting point. I mean, we have a lot of faith in the American way. And so we are, uh, convinced that even though sometimes things look bad, uh, our our democracy will prevail and we'll be okay. But there has been a rise in anti-Semitism even since Donald Trump left office, maybe even more. Uh, we hear about it more and more. Jews will not replace us and all of that. Uh, and uh, there has also been some people who draw parallels between the rise of Donald Trump and the rise of Adolf Hitler. Do you see those parallels? That, that, that's what it was all about. I mean, that's why I was really focused on 1933. Oh, this man is coming in. Oh, interesting. Well, he does say some bad things. Oh, it's probably going to be fine. Yeah, exactly the, the same situation. Going. The economy was bad. You know, you got to blame somebody. So you blame the Jews. And, you know, it's, it's the same book. It's the same playbook right now. It's insane, really, when you think about it. The National Day of Hate that they had last week. Like, what the hell? You know? It used to be that the one thing we all, all Americans could agree on is just one thing, Nazis, bad. Yeah. Yeah. Now we don't. It was like an assumption we made yep. our whole lives. Everyone agrees. Now people are proud to say they're a Nazi. Again. There are good people on both sides. Said yeah, Patrick. good people on both sides. Exactly. Um, so in, in 1920, 19- 1924, I think it was, right, that the uh, Hitler tried to lead the putsch, the overthrow of the German government and failed and was imprisoned, but came back and was elected president. Um, is that the period we're in now with Donald Trump? Is Donald Trump going to come back? And We hope not. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, you know, when, we, when we finished the book, I thought, um, you know, Trump had had uh, been knocked out of office and I said oh you know it's just kind of not very timely anymore because he's gone now Trump but my son said it's not over yet mom <laughs> it's like 20 at the time and um it's true you know it's and past is never past right I mean it, it's just it keeps coming so I'm hoping that is not the case but 
but we, you know, we also thought maybe people reading this book um, would help get them in the right mindset for, I mean, those people were living a great life. They were very happy. It wasn't like it was horrible to live in Germany at the time. It wasn't horrible. And then it changed. And that's basically what happened in America. So it's, you know, and that's why we have to read history and know history. And most Americans don't know Holocaust history unless you're Jewish, because they stopped teaching it in schools. Kids know Anne Frank, they know the number 6 million, and they know nothing else. Yeah, even then, you know, you don't know all those details of how it slowly happened. You know, it was a really slow rollout. It was, I mean, Hitler hated the Jews right from the start, but it was, you know, first they banned certain places you could go to, you know, you have to sit on yellow benches apart from everybody else. And then your business was taken away. And then, you know, the schools were closed. So it was little by little, you know, um, they weren't just murdered right out of the gate, right? It was, it was a slow, slow um, lead up. So, and I don't, I don't think most people know that. I didn't even know that. So that was kind of a big surprise so, to me to see how it happened. You know. So if you wanted to make people aware of a story like that, you could put a picture of Marilyn Monroe with her dress blowing up on the front of your book there you go yeah that's what we're doing I actually I have a friend who lives down south and she posted a picture of it the other day and said how much she was loving it and she's still reading it and um what it was about and one of her friends in Mississippi said oh I don't really believe that happened you know (laughs) it's like that was my first like and it's not even face to face it's Facebook to Facebook encounter with you know, Holocaust deniers. I was like, what? Like, I guess they are out there, right? You know? Well, in fact, there are millions of flat earthers, people who believe that the earth is flat. So, I mean, yeah, <laughs> we, we're, we're living in a uh, time in which people believe what they believe and nothing you can say or do will stop them from believing it. Yep. Yeah. Well, we're hoping this book lands in some of those hands. You know, because it is entertaining. And, you know, if you are into Superman, maybe you'll pick it up. And if you're an anti-Semite, but you love Superman, (laughs) maybe you'll read it and your mind will be changed. That's that's my goal. You know, I mean, the Jewish community, we love the Jewish community, but they already know this story, you know. Yeah, Yeah, well, um, uh, yes, the preaching to the choir aspect. But but you're you're reaching out and that's a great thing. Um, Talk a little bit about Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe, your two... um, uh, Gentile character. <laughs> <laughs> Barely. Marilyn converted later yeah. in life. Yeah. Um, well, do you want to go by? Do you want to talk about Joe? Oh, no? Well, Joe, um, Joe DiMaggio, it turns, well, of course, we started with Marilyn, right? Because we've got the footage of Marilyn. And then we yeah. knew that Marilyn was married to Joe. And the, that night when her dress blew up, Joe got really angry and he beat her up later that night. This was in the original Tom story. We knew this early on. And um, she divorced him right after that. So it was like weeks after she divorced him. So we're researching and then we go ahead. Say my favorite thing about that. She left him the next day. She was really an amazingly strong woman. As we now know, not many women leave their husbands after they get abused. They'll stay. They'll believe the apologies. Marilyn said, no, I'm out. And she left. I'm done with you. Yeah. So she leaves him. And then, then we find out that um, (laughs) Joe DiMaggio was a huge Superman comics fan. So again, it's just like one of those crazy coincidences, like, oh my God, you know. So he came in as a bigger character just with that, you know, and then we traced their relationship a little bit. And then of course, like we said, she converts to Judaism later in life after she marries Arthur Miller. Um, so it all ties together, strangely enough. But strangely enough, one of my favorite 
Joe DiMaggio things was when Marilyn performed for the Korean troops and she said to him, you have no idea, because she didn't know baseball. She didn't really know he, what he was famous for. And this is after he was done playing. She said, you have no idea what it's like to have thousands of screaming fans. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, I do. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I do. do yeah, we, we always say that she needed a wife. You know, she did. She she needed someone to take care of her. She was married to two guys. And I guess at that time, you, you weren't going to find a guy who's going to take care of you. But um, they wanted her to take care of them, you know. But she was Marilyn Monroe. She was busy. You know, she had stuff to do. <laughs> Bo- Bonnie's grandfather took care of his wife. Very much so. Yeah. Another another piece of his story that I, you know, hope I will live up to. <laughs> to the yeah. test. Yeah, um, it's a it's it's really a uh, a wonderful book, and uh, I really love it. And the guests who wrote it, Colleen Stepinski and Bonnie Siegler, and the book is called "The American Way: The True Story of Nazi Escape, Superman, and Marilyn Monroe." Thank you uh, for writing it, and thank you for chatting with us on Film the Bookshop. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Gary. I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Jennifer Cation Armstrong joins me now. She's an historian of American popular culture and the author of many fine books, including biographies of the television series The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Seinfeld, and Sex in the City. Her most recent book is the phenomenal When Women Invented Television, the untold story of the female powerhouses who pioneered the way we watch today. Now Jennifer Cation Armstrong has a Substack feature that I really enjoy about the history of LSD and its place in American popular culture. It's called Culture Trip. I really enjoy Jennifer's histories of stuff uh, that I remember as happening recently. You know, it seems like yesterday that I enjoyed the Mary Tyler Moore show, but it's history to Jennifer. So let me begin, Jennifer Cation Armstrong, by asking, have you ever taken LSD and have you ever taken LSD in the 60s? So I have not taken LSD, um, may have taken other psychedelics, but not LSD. And uh, I don't even, I I think I even sent you an email um, about this that I was like, what happened to LSD? Like, it seems like it used to be everywhere. Like people just had it all the time and now you just don't hear as much about it. And I certainly did not take LSD in the sixties. I was not quite born yet. Not quite. So, I mean, I think there is a difference between there's uh, there's definitely a difference between smoking marijuana today and smoking marijuana in the 1960s. For one thing, uh, you can go to your corner store here in California and buy it. Um, mm. And for another thing, it is far more potent than it was um, in the in the days of the leaves and sorting, you know, uh, taking your um, Bob Marley album and using it as a spot on which to separate the leaves and stems from and seeds. And roll joints with it. Um, <laughs> so um, uh, I I wonder if there's a difference between taking LSD now and taking LSD then. Not necessarily is it as potent or more potent, but uh, you know the environment is is so different. It really is, and that's to me this is a huge thing that I'm interested in, um, and it's why I wanted to look at both the history and I'm also going to do some more current stuff. I'm working on a post about, um, for instance, the actor Will Smith. Um, who has his own journey in a number of ways, but 
you know, he has talked about taking psychedelics, ayahuasca in particular. And so I am going to do kind of current stuff as well. Um, but I think it's really interesting to look at the history because of this difference, at least so far. And the fact that we had this moment where it seemed like everyone was talking about how, you know, psychedelics were going to save the world. And then next thing you know, they were the worst thing. You know, they're schedule one drugs. Uh, Nixon is going after Timothy Leary and making him this public enemy and all of this stuff. So it kind of like we had this moment of, oh, my God, this is going to be great. And everyone's talking openly about this. And then and they were legal, you know, for a while. And then all of a sudden there was this backlash. And so I think it's really interesting to look at the ways that they were perceived then the ways they're perceived now. Are we on the right track this time? I know everyone's trying to be real careful, but, um, you know, so that we don't ruin it again, but <laughs> you know, it, it's really, it's, it seems like it's such a hard thing to contain as you move toward like legalization and stuff. Cause it's like something, you know, something's bound to happen, you know, it's not going to be all perfect all of the time, but nothing is neither is drinking PS. Drinking right. isn't going great for a lot of people either, um, you know, but we've decided that that's okay. And I think that too is a really interesting, like cultural dichotomy is substances and the ways we categorize what is okay and what isn't. Yeah. I mean, alcohol is a perfect example because, you know, if you, you know, if you drink a little alcohol, you know, it loosens you up, it braces you for a, a moment of nerves it um uh, it ma- makes you more attractive and makes other people more attractive but you drink a little bit more and it ruins your life and and destroys the lives of people around you uh, exactly. uh, and i think that's you know in, in lsd i don't know if you um saw in the obituaries the other day that the, there was a musician named jim gordon who uh died in the hmm. 70 something and he um, had been a number one session musician. In fact, he co-wrote Layla, the big Eric Clapton oh. hit, and was yeah. a member of Derek and the Dominoes. And then he started hearing voices and um, he murdered his mother and went to prison. Mm. That would be like the most extreme uh, LSD story ever. Uh, Brian Wilson, I guess, is another really great example of someone who's LSD experience may have ruined him. I mean, I don't know what what he was like before he took LSD, but when he took LSD, he created Pet Sounds, which you mentioned, and then was unable to create anything else of note for the rest of his life, really. Right, right. And this is, I mean, what's great about right now is that there's a lot of study going on, and I think that's the area in which things have tended to be mostly currently um, is in this area of like actual studies. And um, that's great because what it means is that people are under supervision and Timothy Larry talked about set and setting. And I really believe that that's so true in this case is that if you go in, you know, with guidance and intentions and like information and all of those things that these can be really good. And it seems like I mean, I'm still learning myself, but it seems like things kind of got out of control last time when it just became like, let's just do whatever at parties. We're not even sure what substances we're really taking, you know, all of that stuff. And that's when things got 
nutty and um, became kind of like all of a sudden it's fascinating to me. I wrote the first post I wrote um, was kind of a, a broad history of psychedelics and pop culture and particularly that era, that earlier era. And it was fascinating to look at like the life magazine progression of like wonder drug. Can it save us all to like the worst thing that's ever happened? I can't remember the specific um headlines, but it was really interesting to see that kind of like progression. And that was to, to me, like things like Time Magazine and Life Magazine back in the day are like the absolute perfect barometer for, you know, what people were thinking. And it was fascinating to see that. Yeah. I mean, that was a weekly, right? So every, every yeah. week, and, and you once worked for Entertainment Weekly, I should I mention. did, I did, which is the same company too. And so I was always fascinated with those magazines and um, the ways they kind of, you know, it used to be a thing. Like I would even say this in some of my books is that, you know, um, as an indicator of something really having broken through, you know, Sex and the City's on the cover of Time Magazine. Like if you were on the, co- especially as pop culture, if you were on the cover of Time Magazine, that's what was happening at that moment. And it was a real indicator. Now it's like, I guess they still make them, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I remember uh, the words, the letters, I should say, LSD appearing on the cover of Life magazine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it and it's just, it's another one of my absolute favorite, you know, psychedelic pop culture moments, maybe my favorite ever, is um, Cary Grant being in Good Housekeeping magazine, talking about LSD. <laughs> um it's just the combination of all of those things that is so like good housekeeping somehow really kills me. Maybe good housekeeping was so different then. Um, but it kills me that they're like the good housekeeping seal of approval on this mop. Here's a recipe. And also here's Carrie Grant going for 10,000 words about his LSD trips is a real indicator of where they were at the time. And it was written in this way that was like, he's a hero, for, you know, I really, there was some line in it that's basically like, he's so brave for, you know, trying out this thing that could help lots more people too. Um, And yeah, there's just some weird, that's such a weird combination of all of those factors, including also Cary Grant, who's kind of like, to me, the archetype of, you know, leading man back in the day. Oh, absolutely. Sure. And still possibly today. Yes. Um, I mean, I was just recently watching his movie, so he feels very, very present to me. Um, But so just like, I mean, to me, like the equivalent now would be something like George Clooney, you know, going around talking incredibly charmingly about taking psychedelics. That would be a huge boon to, to psychedelics, certainly. You know, one of the things, and I know you are fully aware of this, but one of the things that's different about the 1960s and our current history is that nothing will ever dominate everything the way somebody like Cary Grant or the Beatles once did, because, because there's just so much because of the internet and technology. Uh, and there's no more water cooler moments over the Mary Tyler Moore show as there once were. I mean, everybody has their own, you can't talk to somebody without them telling you oh have you seen a series you've never heard of you haven't seen it it's amazing the first four seasons aren't that great but when you really get into season five (laughs) that's so i'm just i've started saying this is totally off our topic but i'm i started just saying now in those situations i'm just like i just go i'm sure it's great like that's just like I have no doubt. It, I'm really serious too. Like everything is great now is the other problem. Not only is it just so, you know, 
kind of like spread out over, you know, you even have Netflix or Hulu or this or that. And then on top of which it's all great, but I, you know, I only have so many years on this planet, so (laughs) I can't do it all. Right. And you're busy watching old shows so that you can write the book about the Debbie Gibbons. That's right. I'm watching (laughs) Cary Grant movies instead. (laughs) So when you published your first Jennifer Cation Armstrong, when you first published your first Substack article on uh, the the culture trip, did you hear from readers immediately uh, about their um, experiences with LSD? To some extent, yes. And I was totally, it was funny because I was like, oh, I hadn't thought of this. This is when boomers all tell me their, <laughs> their trip <laughs> moments from back in the day, mostly. Yeah. Cause I think people are still, I, it's weird. Like there's a, there's a combination of thing of reactions for people like talking about current experiences. Some people really want to tell you about it. And some people are still like, it's, you know, it's technically illegal. So some people are still really skittish, but I find especially like going back, it's like people would definitely want to tell you about that. And even if it was like, I've definitely had this thing where, um, for instance, my mother-in-law, like her, she only had one experience. It was bad. And so for her, it's just always like, I had this bad trip. Um, you know, so yeah. And even what's funny is to some extent, even people telling me about how they didn't like, you know, (laughs) like a couple people even just being like, you know, I was there and I just never got, a, got I never did that. And I, maybe I kind of regret not partaking back in the day, but yeah, it brings up, it's so associated, I think with a very specific time. That's what's so interesting. Aside from, you know, talking about now and I, the resurgence of kind of ayahuasca and mushrooms, especially LSD, it's like LSD, that window in the late sixties, it just music, it brings back a whole specific thing. And I think that is really fascinating too. Um, I'm reading a book about Woodstock right now, um, which is you know, right at the center of that whole thing is like, it yeah. all of it goes together, right? That music, Woodstock and LSD is kind of like all wrapped up together. Watch out for the brown acid, they said. <laughs> um I wonder if you if you'll find this. I think there's something to be investigated in the differences between men and women's experience with LSD. I think that more men did LSD and more men enjoyed LSD than women. For instance, on on my show here in 2005, I interviewed Cynthia Lennon, who was John Lennon's mm. first wife, and she said the beginning of the end of their relationship was LSD. The wow. first time that they did LSD, it was the worst experience of her life. She never wanted to go anywhere near it. And wow. it was the best experience of John's life. And he proceeded to do it a hundred times. That is fascinating. I mean, there's a, there's like at least two really fascinating things there, right? Which is the gender difference, which I was going to guess it was something like maybe women feel felt more vulnerable. Um, but I don't know if in that circumstance, I was thinking more of like you go to a Grateful Dead show maybe women would feel less comfortable, you know, getting high in, you know, public in that way. But if it was more of a like, you know, intimate setting, it's a little bit surprising and makes you wonder. But also I think that's super interesting that they, um, that that would be such a big moment in a relationship, which I can totally see if you're like really into it and your partner really isn't, I mean, it could go either way, but I can see how that could be at least one 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and right. I think I think, you know, in my experience of knowing people, I think I know more women that have had a bad experience or a bad trip, as they used to say, than men. I'm going to see if there's any, I don't know if they've studied gender differences at all, but I think it'd be so, it'd be fascinating to know if there are gender differences in, perhaps it's just like, I don't know, you know, it could be anything, metabolism or something yeah, like I don't know. crazy thing. This is, I love the science stuff. I love that there's all of this science going on right now where we can look into stuff like this too. And we need tons more before anybody's going to feel comfortable making this, you know, legal and what available. So I think that's great. Well, Jennifer Armstrong, in your latest Substack article, you talk about music and the, the music of the LSD era. And well, I guess there's a few things that come to my mind I want to ask you about. Um, if someone is on LSD and they're making music for people who are on LSD, um, what is it like to listen to that music if you are not on LSD? Yes, I think, I mean, my experience of most, and this goes across the board, by the way, there's like psychedelic rock, right? But there's also even just like the music they will tend to play now, for instance, when at what they call ceremonies, which would be like when you are doing psychedelics in a mindful and group setting. Um, it's all pretty boring. It sounds <laughs> so boring when you hear it, when you're totally sober. Um, it's It's what I would call like, you know, this might not be true of all psychedelic rock, but like, I'll often call it like bath music. It's like what you, you specifically don't want, you know, this incredibly distracting loud thing. Yeah. Um, and even a lot of psychedelic rock, right? When I listen to the Grateful Dead, a lot of it is kind of like those just like long jams. And you're thinking, does this end? Why are we still doing this? You know, especially if you compare it to like current pop music, which is so about like, getting and keeping your attention. Right. And so this is, it just feels very like kind of boring, but often, you know, I know for instance, with the music that they play, the more traditional music that they play, like South American Icaros and stuff um, during ceremony sounds incredibly boring. If you listen to it in your day-to-day -day life, if you are on psychedelics, suddenly you're like, Oh, it's so amazing. Right. Like, I mean, this is true of a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> It could also be like a flower, right? Is that suddenly you're like, flowers are incredible. I'm going to look at this for a half hour, you know? <laughs> so it's just a different situation and it's, and it's made for that. So like you said, if you are on psychedelics and you're making music for people on psychedelics, that seems like the best match. You might be able to do it sober. You might be, if you're a musician who's been through it before, especially you could probably like figure out, I don't, I mean, I wonder how much of that stuff was made specifically, like was all of Revolver, the Beatles album made while they were on psychedelics or was it more like, we just want to evoke the feeling, you know? Yeah, I, I think, I, I don't think it's possible to do that kind of intimate work that, that, you know, that holds up, as you were mentioning in your article, that Revolver still, I mean. Is still I love important. Revolver. Um, <laughs> well, you know, um, because of the... Um, because of the the confines of a 78 record the the limitations of a 78 record it became a thing where songs were about three minutes long right so and it's so, just made up yeah until people started to take lsd and then <laughs> suddenly you know sad-eyed lady of the lowlands took up the entire side of the of a blonde blonde um and people started to make much longer songs um and and jazz music of course expanded too 
and there was acid jazz like miles davis's uh, bitches brew which i find very difficult to listen to yeah that's the thing and i mean who knows if it would help even i don't even know if it would help if you said if you like took some acid first and then listened to it i don't know um or if it's just a special kind of thing but it is very it i do find that it's very different i'm also so interested in i haven't gotten into a lot of there are other genres essentially of psychedelic music like acid jazz yeah. um, that i don't really know that much about and would love to know more but it's interesting to see like across time and situations to how the idea of psychedelic music has been interpreted differently so like for 90s raves you know it was a different kind of thing but you can see similarities the sort of repetitiousness the bending of the notes in certain ways all of that not as much for instance of the eastern um influence that you saw in that 60s stuff like the sitar in it's there's no reason that it had that indian influences have to be in psychedelic music it's just that they were all like hanging around with certain you know this was like when the Beatles went to India basically and they were hanging out with Ravi Shankar and suddenly it was like oh sitars have to be in psychedelic music that sound yeah that that initial sound of a sitar being strummed became synonymous with tripping um which I'm sure Ravi Shankar you know had absolutely no interest in or no (laughs) but uh, I don't know for a fact I don't think he was I don't think he did LSD I think he was very involved in making good music for, you know, right. right. That's what's so funny is that, you know, you sort of start to think because I think yoga came to America largely around that time, you know, all that stuff came together probably for reasons of globalization slash the Beatles, the Beatles are like, anytime the Beatles did anything, it's just like, we're all into this now. Um, But yeah, like you, so you sort of, see that association and then later realize like, oh, that, you know, you don't have to do LSD to do yoga. Those two things just happen to show up in America kind of around the same same. Yeah. As a matter of fact, there were things that had happened long before LSD that became incredibly popular. Uh, Like, for instance, Fantasia, Walt Disney's film, was released in 1940 and was a complete failure and was a huge success in 1968 when Coincidentally. (laughs) (laughs) And Busby Berkeley. There was a huge revival of interest in Busby Berkeley and his bizarre musical numbers. And I have no idea what 30s audiences thought of them, but I know exactly what 60s audiences thought of them. And they played in theaters and Busby Berkeley was alive and well and um, was greeted suddenly as a genius. And he went back and did a play on Broadway and it was great for him. I love that. And um, Fantasia is another example. Like, it's funny because it's sort of like the music we were just talking about. Because I remember seeing it as a kid and being like, this is, I just remember thinking it was weird and boring. Yeah. Um, For especially like for a kid, for those kinds of, you know, you're used to seeing these characters do something interesting and have a storyline. And now suddenly it was like, yeah, I mean, I guess like the dancing flowers are cool for a second. Um, But then I just thought, like, God, this is so boring. But if yes. you, if you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of really it's astounding how that happened. And, and you know, uh, I think another example um, that people don't necessarily think about as part of psychedelic culture is 2001: A Space Odyssey, which mm. is you know basically it's listed as one of the great films of all time, and I believe it is one of the great films of all time. Although it's impenetrable, and it does have a psychedelic animated sequence in the middle for absolutely no reason 
This is, I mean, this is what I think, I think a huge part of it is that certain things become interesting when you're on psychedelics. And a huge part of that, of course, is like the way your senses change um, and, and the way your attention span and time changes. So suddenly things that seem incredibly interminably long when you're sober don't all of a sudden if you are on psychedelics and things, as we said, sound you know, or look so much more interesting. A huge thing is that you, a lot of times people have, um, what's the right word? Synesthesia when mm. they're on psychedelics. So if they're hearing a, one of these things that sounds boring when you're sober, but amazing when you're not, um, often you'll also see colors and patterns that kind of go along with it. So you can see how suddenly that makes it, you actually don't want too much going on in your music, but it makes kind of even boring music seem incredibly interesting. You're literally watching a movie like in your brain because of it. Yeah, you have more patience. As you said, you can stare at a flower or the palm of your hand for the afternoon. Um, although um, it's it, it, not advisable to look in the mirror. Mm, that's true. That's true. Um, I have heard that. And um, I don't know exactly what might happen to you. but <laughs> well, It's just disconcerting yeah exactly it's interesting what you say about patience too I think that's such that's exactly right it's like which is interesting too from kind of almost a spiritual perspective that I mean a huge thing that it also does is make you be in the moment and that's it um and so I mean at least in the best situations that's often what happens is that feeling of total presence like unity with you either everything you say by the way I mean this is a Michael Pollan thing he's said it before and it's so true that like the minute people start describing their trips to you all they do is say like dumb stuff that belongs in Hallmark cards all of a sudden because it's true like the only the problem is that like there's no no way to really express it except to say things like you know everything is love and, you know, love is all that matters and all, but that's what, you know, you feel a, a unity with the universe and you feel like I'm here right now. And it's a reason that people see it as spiritual. And I wrote a whole article for this magazine called Lion's Roar, um, Buddhist magazine about um, the crossovers between Buddhism and psychedelics. This is a huge reason that I got interested in the subject to begin with. And what we teach in Buddhism is all this stuff, you know, that's what you're trying, striving for to, to the extent that you're striving. Um, <laughs> that's what one hopes might occur sometimes when one meditates and this just gets you there. And so it's kind of, you know, it's a, it's sort of a fast track to that experience. And that's why suddenly you're not as concerned about the passage of time or anything else. You're just right there and the whole world is beautiful. In yes. a good Ram Dass's uh, Be Here Now was a big LSD book, uh, as was the Whole Earth Catalog. Um, oh, the Whole Earth Catalog. I've, I have such I have such nostalgia for that, even though I wasn't around for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, um, is this going to be a book that you're doing, or it's just going to be your Substack? We'll see. Um, I just, yeah. I got really interested in it. Like I said, mostly, so I am a practicing Buddhist and one of my secret side jobs is that I write um, articles for Lines Wear Magazine and they actually let me write some of the greatest stuff that I write, like in terms of a place that lets me write long, beautiful profiles, things like that. 
Um, and they asked me to do this thing on psychedelics and uh, Buddhism. And so I, in investigating that, just thought like, oh, this is so interesting. First of all, there are crossovers to what I do, you know, in terms of like cultural history. So if I can look at it from more of a cultural perspective, there's tons to do as we've been talking about music and movies and all of this other stuff. Right. And I just thought like, I think this is going to be a really hot topic in the years to come. Um, and I wanted, I wanted to sort of get my piece of it and start exploring it. And it's fun because it's like still in my specialty area, but there's also a lot to learn. So it's just kind of been this fun little passion project for me. And, you know, I was thinking like, I don't have specific ideas yet, but I thought that by kind of allowing myself to do this and investigate it, that maybe some ideas would come along for book topics, because I think it'd be really fun. Well, and do you have a new book coming since When Women Invented Television? In in a really total left turn from, from our current topic of conversation, uh, I am finishing edits on a book about the movie Mean Girls, which will be out next January, so January of 24. No psychic involved. Is that history, Mean Girls? Isn't it crazy? It's 20 years. Wow. It's yeah. 20 years. So it is starting. I mean, it's just barely. Like, this is clearly by far the most um, recent, recent book that I've done. Um, but 20 years is enough. And looking at, like, living in 2000s pop culture was sort of interesting. There's a very heavy um, internet strand of that particular story. So it's like, the big strands for me um, are like in, in the internet and the ways that it could make movies bigger, essentially through memes and stuff like that. It was one of the first memed movies. Well, Jennifer Cation Armstrong, I look forward to reading it and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much for being with us on From the Bookshelf. Thank you. That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and we'll come back and see us again next time. In the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf. And she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.